Let's turn, please, to Daniel chapter 2 again. This will be the mystery in Daniel 2, part 2. First, we want to alert you to our ladies' ministry. We'll be having their prayer hour after service this morning in the war room. And the theme is how God is supreme. We hope you can join us for prayer and snacks. There's also a box on the table for prayer requests for when we pray the last Sunday of the month. So all requests are confidential. So that's right after service in the war room. That way down the hall, you can't miss it. On Wednesday, I brought what I think will be the central exhortation for our little phalanx for the next year or two, maybe, called Disciples or Drifters. And we've done something a little different this time. First, it's presented with many scripture references in parentheses. Sometimes that's a little distracting, though, so giving it a kind of an epistolary flavor. We've also had it in print. Same message, only without about 50 parenthetical references, so... I think it's better to read it this way, and a handful of you are going to memorize this message word for word, and it's better to do it without all the parenthetical references. So, disciples or drifters from DLT, from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, this morning we were received the news that a dear friend has now passed into the presence of the Lord, having done so last evening, last night in his sleep, and that's Ron Ilgenfritz. Maybe some of you remember him. I certainly do, and he's been in my heart all these years. He's otherwise known as Soft G, because after knowing him for about 20 years, he said to me, that's a Soft G. I, I called him Ilgenfritz for years, and he said, you know, that's a Soft G. And I said, now you tell me. So I called him Soft G from then on. And uh, this morning on the way down in the car, I talked to his son, Ron. And I was so astonishingly edified to know that his father stayed with the message even when he was unable to travel, even up until the last minute as he was living in assisted living. And he began with us. He heard us on the radio in 1982, so 38 years of steady grasp of the message. And Ron, his son, also has a wonderful grasp of the message. And he said his dad was thrilled, first of all, that I called him Soft G. He liked that. Um, Secondly, he was thrilled with the message that all will become the righteousness of Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. And he was just overwhelmingly Grateful for the message. So he stayed with the phalanx. And people who do that are called rightly the companions of the Messiah, as Hebrews 3.14 says. So he's in the presence of his best friend right now, he's in the, along with his wife. And our regards, consolations, and love goes out to Ron, of course, and Gary and Mary Beth who are his children and their families. He was, as Ron said, he was a character. They're not going to have anything 
which is typical of soft G. They're not going to have any memorial or wake or whatever. They're just going to have the family gathered around. And so his son said he was a character, and I can attest to that. Um, Not only was he a character, but he had character. And the character I thought of this morning in 2 Corinthians 10, when Paul appealed to the Corinthians, he said, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And the meekness and gentleness of Christ was displayed consistently through Ron. Soft G, soft grace through him all the time. And he always remained in my heart. I told Ron that this morning. I was just, again, so edified to hear Ron Jr. say that he loved the message. He had, just in a few sentences, he showed me that he had a firm, steady grasp on the message of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his universally saving significance, his saving righteousness. So maybe he's not having a memorial, but he just got one. I'll prophesy over Ron and say, Soft G, we'll see you very soon. Only teaching twice a week now has afforded me the opportunity not of studying less, but much more, doing much more, working much harder in the cave. And so what I've done is translated Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, all the way to the end of the chapter in which Daniel not only tells the king the dream he had, this goes along with last week's message, and in fact, along with our Genesis 28 message of the vision that Jacob had of the lattice and of Yahweh on the lattice, Christ crucified. So I translated this from the Theodosian revision with a little, with an eye to McLeay's translation where I couldn't really figure things out. So I'm going to read that in its entirety and then show the interpretation of this chapter. I cannot emphasize to you enough the importance of the chapter that we're studying, Daniel chapter 2. And there's hardly another place in the scripture that has more of a clear apocalyptic depiction of the mystery of God and the mystery of God's will which is to summarize everything in Christ Jesus, everything in the heavens and on earth, to savingly summarize it all. It's all in this vision, and I hope you'll see it as it unfolds. We've established in part one of the mystery in Daniel chapter two that the vocabulary of the Theodosian revision of the Septuagint was written in the first century Greek text, has a remarkable affinity to Paul's vocabulary in Romans 16, 25, and 26, but also in Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians, and we're also going to see it in 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 16. We have already suggested that Daniel 2 is a remarkable example, and there are hundreds of them. You can, the, the scriptures haven't even begun to be tapped. That's why I find such chagrin in seeing people who call themselves universalists go into 
mysticism and other kinds of ideologies, and they leave as if the scripture had been tapped already, as if there's nothing left in the scripture to discover, and there's much more in the scripture to discover. The word, we stay with the word. To tell us thy phalanx is a ministry of the word. We're here for the word of God, the word incarnate in Jesus Christ, the word in literary form in the scriptures taught by the spirit of truth. We're not here to deviate. We're not here to get fancy with fancy mystical language. We're here to preach Christ and him crucified, teaching every person we can, warning every person we can in order to present as many people as we can as mature in Christ. And I think you'll see with drifters and disciples, and I urge you to read this message, at least read it. I urge you to read it many times because I have rarely been so impelled from within by the Holy Spirit and an exhortation. So we've already suggested that Daniel 2 is a remarkable example of just how the mystery kept silent in the writings of the prophets now speaks up and is commanded to speak up as God, the eternal God, has commanded it. So it's my task today to scrutinize the vision of the king's dream in more detail and to do it in order to see that it does indeed speak of the mystery of God's will in the administration of the fullness of times to sum up everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. All arrows in this series point to Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. And in fact, all arrows in the scripture do. As such, this vision is an apocalyptic style depiction of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and a depiction, a clear presentation of the redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we legitimately boast, as Galatians 6.14 and Philippians 3.3 says. Understanding this mystery, grasping this mystery, frees us to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of this mystery. This proclamation has the power to convey hope, to communicate hope and expectation of divine good, and the power to speak louder than all of the voices and noises that are competing for people's attention today. After all, mercy Shouts louder, says one translation of James 2.13, than judgment, because mercy, in fact, triumphs over judgment. The arc of the moral universe is long, and it, but it bends toward justice, as Martin Luther King said. And I say that the arc of the moral universe may in t- indeed bend toward justice, but mercy is the final expression of God's justice. Mercy upon all. Romans 11:32. Because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've spoken many times before in the past on Daniel chapter 2. Even taught it in a Christian commune on College Street in Burlington, Vermont in the early 70s. So that was my first time. 
I've spoken many times, but this time I'm doing so with specific reference to the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in the heavens and on earth over the course of all time in Christ. Now, Daniel chapter 2, again, I've translated from 31 all the way to 49. I'm going to read it fairly briefly. But Daniel had a terribly difficult task. The king said, you've got to tell me what the dream is first. Tell me the dream in its details. Then interpret it. Two tasks. So Daniel lays it out so perfectly, decently, and in order, respectfully, to this tyrannical king. And he stands before him with great boldness. In Daniel 2, 31, it begins. You, king, were looking in your dream. Suddenly you beheld a single colossal image, and its whole appearance was striking. It was standing before you, and the vision of it that it presented was terrifying. As for the massive icon, verse 32, whose head was pure gold, its hands and chest and arms silver, its torso and thighs bronze, the lower legs iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of fired clay or earthenware. You kept looking. This is the key to verses 34 and 35. You kept looking, watching with astonishment, until a stone was cut out from a mountain, not by hands. And it struck the massive icon on the toes of iron and fired clay and completely pounded them to powder, pulverizing them. Then all at once, the fired clay, the iron, the bronze, the silver, and the gold became as the dust from the summer threshing floor. And the greatness of the wind, the word is pumatos, which is the same word for spirit, arose and no place was found for them. This same phrase is used in Revelation 20 and verse 11, before the great white throne, no place was found for the former heavens and the former earth because they were ruled over by sin and death, death and Hades, both of which were thrown into hell. Who goes to hell? Death and Hades. Who else? Nobody. And the stone, says the last part of 35, that struck the icon became a massive mountain, and please notice this phrase, and filled the whole earth. The stone, T-O-N-L-I-T-H-O-N, ton lithon. This stone, this phrase is used in many other key places in the scripture. We're only going to scratch the surface of it today. Filled the whole earth, plerao, key word in the gospel of Matthew, plerao, P-L-E-R-O-O. Filled up the whole earth. The stone became a mountain. The word became flesh. The stone became a mountain. And filled up the whole earth. Now, that's the dream. I love the way Daniel does it. That was the dream, king. Now, here's the interpretation. Here's what it means. This is what you're really after. 
Here, this was the dream, verse 36. Now we will tell the interpretation before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, and the God of heaven has given you a powerful and mighty and highly respected kingdom. Notice the courtesy that he affords this king, who's a terrorist and a tyrant and a mass murderer. Verse 38, in every place where the sons of men reside or where there are animals of the field or birds of the air, he has given into your hand and has appointed you Lord over all. Small L. You are that head of gold. In the image. And after you, verse 39, will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and a third, that is the bronze, which will lord it over the whole earth. And there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, as iron crushes and subdues everything. So it will crush and subdue everything. And you saw, verse 41, that the feet and the toes were partly made of fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 12, 25, that a kingdom that's divided cannot stand. The kingdom of Satan is divided and it cannot stand. He goes on to say it will be a divided kingdom and some of the root of the iron will be in it as you saw the iron mixed. Mixed here, the word means not only to be mixed but to have intercourse and it's reminiscent of the beast and the whore of Babylon in, in an illegitimate union in Revelation. So he says the root will be in it as you saw the iron mixed with the fired clay. But at verse 42, but as for the toes of the feet being partly made of iron and partly of fired clay, that means that part of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be broken. For you saw the iron mixed with the fired clay. This means that there will be a promiscuous commingling. I believe this is predicting Herod's illegitimate marriage to his brother's wife, but I believe it also refers more generally to the Second Temple Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem in A.D. 30, and its illegitimate union with Rome, SPQR, the Roman Empire. Among the seed of humanity, and it will not hold together, this union will not hold together, this one with that one, just as iron doesn't mix with fired clay. Here's 44 and 45, the key verses I want to home in on and in the days of those kings the God of heaven will cause a kingdom for the ages to arise which will never be destroyed and will not be left to other people it will reduce to powder and scatter all the kingdoms and shall rise to stand for the ages In a manner just as you saw, a stone was cut out from a mountain, not by hands, and it pounded to powder the fired clay, the iron, the bronze, the silver, 
and the gold. The great God has made known. Norizo, our key word, one of the key words, to the king, what must happen after these things. And the dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. Notice what the king's response was. Then the king fell face down and worshipped Daniel and commanded that grain offerings be offered and fragrances as drink offerings be poured out to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, this is literally what he says, it is reality. Aletheia, Aletheia. It is reality. Your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, apocalypton musteria, because you were enabled by him to reveal this mystery, apocalypse to musterian, the revelation of the mystery. And the king exalted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and put him in charge over all the district of Babylon. That's their D.C. And made him chief satrap or governor administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And per Daniel's request, these wise men incidentally kind of became the three wise men that visited Jesus. They had some insight from their chief advisor, Daniel, about the Messiah. And per Daniel's request, Daniel just didn't, Daniel was wise. He took this exaltation because it saved his life and the life of all the king's cabinet. But he decided to bring his friends on board. Per Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is probably more closely, Sedrach, Misak, and Abdenago, his three friends, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, And Daniel himself remained in the king's palace. Now, the fundamental focus of the vision that I want you to see is the stone cut out of the mountain. The first of the two climactic moments of this vision is when the stone strikes the image on its feet and toes, causing the pulverization of the whole colossus all the kingdoms of the world, cut out of the mountain without hands. Without hands is an, means an entirely divine action, the incarnation and the Christ event. Like Colossians 2.11, the circumcision made without hands, which is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or as Hebrews 9.11 calls it, the heavenly tabernacle. Now Christ has appeared, it says in Hebrews 9.11, high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Something not of this creation comes into the world. A stone cut out without hands, a child born without a human father involved. The incarnate word is what is being spoken of here. Here is depicted the incarnation. The striking of the feet is the confrontation that Jesus of Nazareth had with the rulers of this age. The clay represented an apostate Israel, the high priest Caiaphas, 
Pontius Pilate was the representative of the iron kingdom, Rome, that subdued everything. Jesus confronted them both. And you can find this in Mark 14. You can find it in John 9, 19. I'm not going to go into it in great detail, although sometime I'd like to do that, perhaps in a book form. So the striking of the feet is the confrontation with the rulers of this age who conspired against the Lord and his anointed. Psalm 2 talks about it. This confrontation resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, of course. John 19, 16, and 17. And that was intended by men and by the rulers of this age for evil. But it was planned by God for the ultimate universal good. The uncertain alchemy of iron and fired clay, that's a very tentative union, even if you don't understand chemistry or alchemy. It's a very tentative and uncertain union. And that refers to the religious and political alliance of SPQR, Sonatus Populusque Romanus, the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus, and apostate Second Temple Judaism. It was just ready to go through the second death, the first death, was the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. The second death, final, was the destruction of the apostate temple in A.D. 70, 40 years after the crucifixion. And so this is the political alliance. This toes and feet represent this tentative alliance. And, of course, the head of gold is Babylon. The silver kingdom is Medo-Persia. And then the thighs, the strong thighs were Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire. These are all representative of the kingdoms of this world. Pulverized and ground into powder and then a great wind, pneuma, spirit, came and blew the powder away. There's nothing left of this power, this competing authority against the grace and love and mercy of God, the sovereignty of God's grace. Grace reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21. So when Jesus, here's the question then. Let's put it in a Q&A just briefly. At what point in history did the stone strike the image? The answer is when Jesus was brought before Caiaphas and Pilate, the representative of apostate Jerusalem, Caiaphas, the representative of bestial Rome or the beast, Pontius Pilate. When Jesus was crucified or as a result of those confrontations, he was buried and a huge stone was placed over his tomb. A huge stone disc was rolled over his tomb. And an armed guard from the kingdom of iron and by the order and request of the kingdom of clay stationed at his grave. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and the stone was rolled away after he passed through that stone just to reveal an empty tomb. If the rulers of this world, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, if the rulers of this world had known, known what? The mystery that you know, the mystery that God has made known to you. If they had known, Paul said, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. A stunning fact in 1 Corinthians 2.8. And my 
take on this is they never would have crucified him, not only because they would have known that all things would be placed under his headship. If they'd have known that, they still would have crucified him. The evil tenants of the tenant farmers said, this is his son, the owner of the vineyard, let's kill him. If they had known that he was, what they, what they didn't know was that he would not only become head over all things, but their power and authority would be reduced to nothing by their action of crucifying him. That's why they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Not again, because all things would be placed under Christ's headship and a result of their action, but because they would have seen their own headship and authority pulverized as a result of it. The moment the stone striking the image at the feet and toes was what I call the epicenter, ground zero, of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying impact of his death or of his cross. The actual death of Jesus on the cross, followed inexorably by his resurrection and exaltation, not exalted to the royal palace of Babylon like Daniel, but to the right side of the majesty in the highest height of heaven, having made purification of sins in Hebrews 1.3, having put away sin by the offering of himself at the close of the ages in Hebrews 9.26, having offered himself without spot as the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. And so the second moment, climactic moment of this vision, after the stone striking the toes, was the stone becoming a mountain and filled the whole earth. Plerao, filled the whole earth. What a stunning vision. So this second moment depicts the horizon of the cross, the striking of the toes, the epicenter, the actual death, the stone becoming a mountain, the horizon, the universal effect of that crucifixion and resurrection. The stone became a mountain. This depicts the cross and its recreative impact of the universe and all of time diachronically. The stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth is reminiscent of Ephesians. Look it up on your own. Ephesians 1, and 23 and Ephesians 4, 8 and 10. The conglomerate of the kingdoms of this world with all their tyrannical and oppressive power and authority are utterly pulverized and the powder blown away by the breath, the spirit like a mighty wind. The effect of the two divine missions is what's being seen here. The first climactic moment, we're doing an interpretation that Daniel couldn't have done because he did not know Jesus the Nazarene was this stone. So the first climactic moment, this recaps what I said already just so you get this and understand it. The first climactic moment reveals the total pulverization and blowing away of all power and authority 
that is pitted against the sovereign grace, mercy, and love of God. The stone cut out without hands hits the toes. That's right at Mark 14, 61, John 19, 11 to 16. Pilate says, you know, I have the power to crucify you or let you go. And Jesus said, you have no power whatsoever, cosmic prince, unless my father grants it to you. It happens to be that my father wills that I be delivered to the cross, crucified by godless men, raised the third day, and that I transform you and everyone else by my grace. I'm just expanding a little. This causes the total collapse of the oppressive kingdoms of this world who operate under the eschatological enemy called sin and who always use the fear of death to enslave their subjects. The annihilation of the head of gold, incidentally, listen carefully to this. This is an insight. The annihilation of the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, was not the annihilation of the man, Nebuchadnezzar, whose threefold conversion is recorded in Daniel 4. Threefold conversion, including the spiritual conversion where he worshiped the God of heaven. So obviously, the destruction of the head of gold is the destruction of oppressive power that he wielded under sin, not the man himself created in the image of God. Pictured in the vision is the annihilation of all tyrannical and oppressive power and authority. The transformation of all rational beings, including the former holders and abusers of that power. And so this is an apocalyptic depiction of, listen carefully, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Then comes the end when he, Christ, hands the kingdom over to God the Father. Listen carefully to this. When all rule and authority is brought to nothing. The whole thing collapses and the powder is blown away. Comes to nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 25 says, For he must reign as king until God has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Now the kingdoms depicted in the king's vision once held the power of life and death. In the king's mouth, from his tongue, is life and death. It's taken away, and death itself is destroyed. How about Revelation 10, chapter 10, and verse 5? I still have my translation I did when we did that book. 10, 5 through 7. Then the angel whom I saw take his stand on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he took an oath by the one who lives forever, who created the heavens and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay, said the angel. On the contrary, verse 7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound the trumpet, Then, listen carefully, God's mystery will be completed as he announced as good news through his willing slaves, the prophets. How about this alluding to Amos chapter 3, 
Revelation 10.7 alludes to Amos chapter 3, which says, For Yahweh does nothing without first revealing, apocalypto, his confidential conversation. In other words, the prophets are pictured as men who are holy men of God, sometimes women. They are called to be in the office of God when the triune God are speaking about their counsel. They are allowed to hear the conversation, the secret conversation of God. And that alludes to Proverbs 3.32 and Jeremiah 23.18. Yahweh does nothing without first revealing his confidential conversation. In other words, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and their sovereign roundtable discussion. Let's summarize everything in the heavens and on earth in the incarnate word. Amen, amen. And the angels will say, holy, 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 Lord God of the armies, the whole earth is filled with his glory, the glory of his grace. Isaiah 6, 3. So if Yahweh does nothing without first revealing his confidential conversation, the Hebrew word sod, meaning secret counsel, to his slaves, the prophets. And what did God speak by the mouth of all these prophets who heard his secret conversation? Well, he spoke in them about the restoration of all things, Acts 3.21, the universal restoration which is in essence a great salvation. If you see Acts 3.21 and compare it with 1 Peter 1.10-12, a great salvation that was enacted in Jesus Christ and him crucified, a reality not made entirely manifest in its totality until the New Testament. Mystical, sometimes universalists, are afraid of the name Jesus. They think there has to be some other name that is given to him that we can so that we can have something new. There is the name Jesus and there is no other name under heaven whereby people are saved. I'm not ashamed of the name Yeshua. I'm not ashamed of the name Jesus. I'm not ashamed of saying that all reality is summed up in Jesus, that all creation will be summed up in him, that he will comprise all of created reality, even as in him already all of uncreated reality is embodied in Colossians 2.9. And his name is Jesus. Sometimes people almost are fearful of uttering the name Jesus because it is uttered almost always in this world, in vain, in surprise, in curse, in blasphemy. So what does Revelation eleven fifteen say? The two witnesses, which is the church. Revelation eleven fifteen, at the sound of the trumpet sound by the seventh angels, voices in heaven shouted, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his, his anointed Messiah. The kingdom of this world, from the head of gold down to the toes of iron and clay. That kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord and his anointed. Again, in Ephesians 1.10, 
for the administration of his household. And I'm going to be clarifying what that means in the future. That means for the filling up of God's house, which is everything, everywhere in the heavens and earth. Filling up of God's house in the fullness of times, meaning over the course of all time. To gather and sum up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. This is what the king saw. This is what Daniel dreamed and saw in his night vision. This is what the interpretation is. Again, the second climactic moment in that dream and that vision is when the stone becomes a mountain and fills, plerao, the whole earth. In Ephesians 1.23, Jesus Christ is called tu ta panta en pasen, which means he who fills up all with all. He who fills up all with all, meaning he who fills up all things with all of himself, which is the fullness of God. To be filled up with the fullness of God is to be filled up with Christ, is to have Christ formed in us. Because what is the fullness of God but Christ? He is the one who fills up everything with himself. That's my point. That's where I'm adding to the message of the universal significance of Jesus. I'm adding that point. He fills up all with all, meaning he fills up all things with all of himself the fullness of God. When he fills up everything with himself, who is the fullness of God, then God is all and in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Now I love what the New Living Translation has done here. I have 92 translations at my fingertips, and I respect the complete Jewish Bible, for example, which says, translates it in Hebrews or in Ephesians one twenty three, him who fills all creation. That gets the point. The mountain that fills the whole earth. He who fills all creation. Complete Jewish Bible, Ephesians one twenty three. God's word translation has, so that he fills everything. Pretty good. But the New Living Translation, which was a new translation intended to replace the Living Bible, and it's much better than it, has this translation, so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. That's got it. Bang. Yes, that's it. Bingo. Bingo, whether from top down or from bottom up, bingo. And there's two ways of doing theology, one from the top down and one from the bottom up. And either way you slice it, he fills up the whole universe with himself. That's what the stone becoming a mountain, filling the earth is all about because he's already filled the heavens. And so I believe the new living translation NLT has caught the essence of the meaning intended by the apostle in doing so. It has also caught the meaning of the stone becoming a mountain and filling up the whole earth and all of this in turn points to Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. The mystery of God's will to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ. This is none other than the universally saving significance, which Ron Ilgenfritz this morning said, 
you began to talk about about 10 years ago. And he's right. The universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying impact of his descent and death and his exaltation through resurrection and ascension. The present middle participle of plerao that's used in Ephesians 1.23, present, present, middle participle, shows that this filling up is already in process. It's already going on. The church, as it's called, is the present pleroma of him, according to Ephesians 1.23. The church, which is the pleroma, the present fullness of him, and a kind of first fruits of the universal filling up that's yet to be gloriously manifested as the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God, fills the whole earth. Put Second Corinthians 4.4 4, together with Habakkuk 2.14, and you'll have something. As Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. This knowledge of the glory of Yahweh is nothing other than the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Light that shines into the gloomy caverns of the human heart as it is shown into mine. Even today, as sleepers awake, Christian and non-Christian, as sleepers awake, and as the dead arise for the glory of Christ to shine on them, for the Son of Righteousness is to arise with healing and new life in his rays. Again, I have to say, this process has already begun because of the new humanity, the truth already pertains that Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.10 and 11. In Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens in order to, Ephesians 4.10, in order to fill up everything with himself, is how I would translate that, or with all the fullness of God. To fill up everything with himself is to fill up everything with the fullness of God. And when you come to the knowledge of the full love of God, the love of Christ, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ, you will be filled up with all the fullness of God, which simply means you will be one in whom Christ has been fully formed. In Galatians 4.19, you will manifest the fruit of the Spirit consistently. We're never going to get to perfection. Not that I have reached perfection, Paul said. I'll tell you one thing. I only do one thing in this life, one thing I press on toward the mark of the prize of the upward calling, Christ Jesus. Read Drifters versus Disciples. So, this is the same stone, and I'm going to abbreviate this. This will be in writing, but I want to abbreviate the rest of this. This is the same stone that Psalm 118.22 says, 
or Septuagint 117.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A chief cornerstone isn't just one stone. It's the stone that comprises the whole of the temple. Without it, the whole of the temple collapses. The chief cornerstone holds the entirety together. The whole temple is Christ. And the whole temple is the universe. And that's why John, when he saw the new Jerusalem, he said, I saw no temple in it. He saw the new Jerusalem as having expanded to fill this whole new heavens and new earth. And he said, I saw no temple in it. He looked around for a temple. He didn't find one. You know what he said? Because the lamb is the temple. The lamb is the temple. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the ruler of all and the lamb is its temple and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to give it light for the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. Acts 4.11. Peter speaking to the very rulers that Psalm 2 prophesied. They conspire against Yahweh and his anointed. They vote for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but they imagine a vain thing. It's a vain imagination. It's a fruitless endeavor. And Peter says to these men in Jerusalem, Peter preaches in Acts 4.11, and he says to them, this Jesus is the stone despised by you builders who has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Again, this stone is none other than the stone in the prophecy of Psalm 118.22. The stone is tonlethon there too, as it is in Daniel. Ton Lithon, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Matthew 21, 44, it's in brackets because some manuscripts don't contain it. But either Jesus said it or Matthew wrote it as a comment. It says, has an obvious reference to Daniel 2:34 and 44. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. He's speaking there of the upcoming, within 40 years, destruction of the union of Rome and Jerusalem, an apostate union, an illegitimate union, and the expansion of the kingdom of God until it covers everything and fills everything. Jesus is predicting in Matthew 21, 44, the fall of Jerusalem, but also of Rome and all the kingdoms of this world and the transfer of all these kingdoms to Yahweh and his anointed one. Finally, this truth is not lost in Ephesians. Ephesians actually refers to this stone again because it says in 2.19 to 22, my translation, so then you pagans, he says, are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief 
cornerstone in whom the whole building is being joined together. You see, the cornerstone is that in whom the whole building is joined together and is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built up together into a residence for God in the spirit. God's headquarters on earth. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, and this is where I want to close, something hit me this morning that surprised me. Because I always say, I can't believe how magnificent that is. And then I always say, but Lord, I know there's something on top of that. You always do exceedingly abundantly above what we could ask or think. So do it. Do it. And he does. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Remember, Paul talked about the rock that followed the wandering Israelites and from which they drank in the desert. The rock was a saving presence. Paul boldly said in a big 10.4, 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Not Rocky Balboa. Not Dwayne Johnson. Christ. The rock. The rock was Christ. Here, I'm going to say, the stone is Jesus. With the same boldness. This is all the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our enlightened eyes. And this takes us back to Genesis 28. In Jacob's dream, a still small voice, we could say, said to me, you know, there was a stone in that one too. It's kind of hidden there, but the stone was in. Because Jacob... It looks like one translation says he used the stone for a pillow. And I'm thinking, that's a strange pillow. No wonder he had dreams. But what he did was he laid a stone around near him, and then he went to sleep. The stone was near him. After the dream, he stood the stone up. Same word for resurrection, incidentally. And he poured oil on it, anointed it. The risen stone. So... I started to look at this and I said, are you kidding me? I mean, I thought I had something here. And then you do something more than that. Genesis 28, look at verse 18. This is after the dream. And Jacob arose in the morning and took the stone. Guess what it is? Ton Lithon took the stone. This is after the dream where Yahweh is seen on a torture instrument. And where angels are seen ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the crucified one. Jacob arose in the morning and took the stone. Same word as in Daniel 2.45, ton lithon. He had laid there by his head, not under it. I mean, this not might be, may not be my pillow, but he did not use a rock for a pillow. It was laid there by his head. And he set it up. He stood it up so it became a pillar. And he poured oil on the top of it. He anointed the stone. Why? Why this profound symbolic action? Did Jacob even know what he was doing? I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell. But he called the name of that place the house of God. Oikos Theu, Bethel. He called the name of that place a city that was once called Ulamlus, or 
a pagan name in that the city that was in proximity to this. You could see the city from where he was. He named the place the house of God. So it seems that as the rock was to follow Jacob's descendants through their wilderness wanderings, so a stone followed Jacob. And the stone was the anointed one who stood up from the dead after being affixed to a torture instrument. We see Yahweh affixed to a torture instrument. Then we see a stone standing up and anointed with oil and the place called the house of God. Jacob named the place the house of God. God may have very well intimated to this patriarch that the house of God was Jesus Christ who would house not only all of God, but all of the universe, all of the heaven and the earth. For God's plan all along, as Jesus' parable showed, is to fill up his house. Go to the alleyways. Go out into the streets. Go to the slums and go everywhere and compel them, drag them in, so that my house will Be full, said the master of the banquet. And so, Daniel got much more than he petitioned for from the God of heaven. This God of heaven is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and who does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think or even imagine, Ephesians 3.20. He not only saw Daniel, not only saw a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which knowledge actually saved the lives of all of the king's advisors and Daniel and all the king's advisors that were Jewish men. But in the bargain, God made known to Daniel by an apocalypse, the mystery of God, Christ, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact saving of the cross of Christ. Not only that, but Daniel was appointed to be ruler over all of D.C., the city, the capital of Babylon, and used his newfound influence to not only preserve, but highly promote his three best friends. So I'll close with this question. Is this not a wonderful example of just how the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in Christ was silent in the writings of the prophets like the prophet Daniel? but is now made known to us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. You have made known to us indeed. Everywhere we look now in the writings of the prophets, whether the prophet is Moses in Genesis 28, or whether the prophet is Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, everywhere we look, the mystery which has been kept silent in those writings speaks up to us in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that as the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ, so the stone that follows us everywhere is Jesus. The stone that becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. This is our hope, Father. May the hope be contagious. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.